Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm overcome by emotion. Da 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 Love themes, Cinema Paradiso. Now that you've driven away everyone who might have started listening to this episode, let's get started here. This is our special retrospective 10th season. We are looking back at all of the years we've covered in previous seasons and picking out one movie from each year that we didn't cover uh, to talk about in, uh, in these new episodes. So here in this episode, we are revisiting 1989, and we are talking about another foreign film pick, and this was, in fact, the Oscar winner for Best Foreign Language Film, and that is Giuseppe Tornatore's Cinema Paradiso with that theme i i guess or something that sort of sounds like that josh while you're talking right now all i hear under you is da di da di da 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 no see i i was i was concerned that this episode was going to be filled with some bad italian accents from jason but instead we get this and this is this is so much worse so i don't understand dave you're the music guy there's nothing offensive about attempting this music you know come on guys i am i am the music guy and yeah no it's not offensive (laughs) it's just annoying so different issues there but uh i look forward to hearing it several more times throughout the course of this you know what josh if a movie theater burned down and you were in it i wouldn't drag you down oh man flight of stairs wow this is such this is such like a pleasant feel good movie to have a such a contentious opening here to this episode. i mean is it at the end is it really I, I think mostly it is i think we'll, we'll get into that but uh, i think overall that's the intent and the uh, the general effect of this film so <laughs> cinema paradiso the nostalgic look at uh, a small italian village in the 1940s and 50s where there is a single movie theater that is the center of culture in this village. It was actually uh, a pretty big hit, uh, not only internationally, but also in the US, where it made $12.4 million. Not sure about the international box office, was not in the uh, places that we uh, usually check for that info, but uh, a budget of $5 million, and and just generally beloved uh, around the world, although not initially, weirdly enough. Uh, It was released in November 1988, in Italy, uh, in its home country, uh, where it did not do well, critically or commercially. This was a a 155-minute version of the film, which is somewhere in between the eventual successful version and then the much longer director's cut that was released uh, in 2002. Uh, But that version did not do well. However, When it was cut into the 124-minute version, that is the one that is mostly uh, well-known and beloved 
by audiences, it it became a massive success. Uh, that version premiered at the 1989 Cannes Film Festival, where it won the special jury prize. Uh, it eventually went on to win a whole bunch of awards, including the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, uh, as well as the Golden Globe for that, and five BAFTAs, not only the award for the best film not in the English language, but also best actor for Philippe Noiret, uh, who plays Alfredo the Projectionist, best supporting actor for Salvatore Cascio, or Cascio, we're going to mispronounce a lot of Italian things in this episode, um, who played the youngest version of Salvatore, or Toto, the main character, uh, best original screenplay, and best score for Jason Harris's rendition of the score. So congratulations on your uh, on your BAFTA there, Jason. Well, you know, Josh, it's just one of many awards this film has won, including the Caesar Award for Best Poster. Well, that's an important award. So I don't know which poster that was because, you know, there's so many different ones you can find online. And uh, but I'm sure it was great. Josh, it's funny. So the because I looked this stuff up because I do research because I bring the meat, baby. The movies it beat out for best foreign film for the Oscars. Have you seen any of these? Camille Claude, Jesus of Montreal, Memories of a Marriage, and What Happened in Santiago? I have not. I know Camille Claude or Camille Claudel, I think, is it? That's a pretty well-known French film. But um, the other ones, I'm not, and I haven't seen it, and the other ones I'm not familiar with at all. And, and to me, obviously, my score, Josh, my attempt at the score is because it's so wonderful. Like, I think, I mean, honestly, like, Whatever it's, it was a fun joke, but I think it's like one of the best pieces of music in it from a movie ever. And obviously, uh, many agree with me since like he's you know it's one of uh, Morricone's most famous pieces of music. He's toured with it; it sold a ton of copies. Blah blah blah. But it wasn't nominated for an Oscar for score. The Little Mermaid won. The other nominees: Born on the Fourth of July, The Fabulous Baker Boys. Field of Dreams and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I'm sure they're all good, but I can't see this not getting a nomination at least. Yeah, the score is excellent. And your your butchering of it does not, you know, of course, do it justice. And obviously, Ennio Morricone is one of the greatest film composers of all time. Um, but you're right that this is certainly amongst all his work, one of his uh, most notable, most beloved uh, and it's really, it sets the mood. And I think that score is one of the reasons why I'm describing this movie as this sweet, nostalgic story, even if there's some dark elements to it, because I think the score gives you that emotional context that that's kind of how we're meant to see it. It's definitely got that nostalgic, whimsical, like kind of look back. And Josh, of this song in particular, the love theme uh, you know, this was uh, Morricone and his son, Andrea, and Andrea wrote the song. Morricone just kind of helped bring in the symphonic elements of it. So uh, just like Jiro, who dreams of sushi, we got to give some love to the kid here. Yes, credit to both both the Morricones, both uh, brilliant uh, composers and musicians. So uh, I, I just wanted to note that something that that struck me as surprising, Giuseppe Tornatore, the writer and director of this film, was only 32 when he made this movie. And this movie seems like something that would be made by like someone in their 60s or 70s as they like reflect back on their life. And that's not what it was at all. He wasn't even alive during the time period that this movie depicts. So it was just kind of surprising to me. It seems so personal, but maybe it wasn't. Well, like you said, there were three cuts. I mean, his is the 173 minute cut, which um, as we were doing research, there were a lot of 
article saying how, you know, the two hour version is better than the three hour version. And that original cut, I don't know. Did we see that one back in the day when we, we used to have a film club and we watched movies? I feel like that was the one we saw back in the day, the original cut. The 155 minute cut? Yeah. The t- I, I don't so. know that that cut is available anywhere. It doesn't mm. seem to be. All of the, you know, various home video releases are either that main theatrical cut, the 124 minute that is the most popular, or that later uh, nearly three hour director's cut. So I don't know that that original one, which was the one that kind of flopped in Italy, is available. It seems to me that that would be the least appealing because it's not the very popular one that everyone loves and it's not the director's pure vision. So why would you even want that? One? None of these awards were for best editor, huh? And we maybe want to give a little love to this editor here. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, maybe we don't want to give love to, but credit to Harvey Weinstein, who uh, in his notorious position at Miramax uh, helped uh, guide the cuts of this film as he did with many foreign films uh, usually to to ill effect, <laughs> it seems like. But in this one instance, uh, it worked out. So uh, critics were definitely fans of this film, although I was surprised to find uh, kind of measured enthusiasm in some of the reviews that I that I looked at. Uh, Siskel and Ebert, however, they gave it two thumbs up. They both really enjoyed it. And uh, Roger Ebert in his review said... Tornatore's movie is a reminder of the scenes in Francois Truffaut's Day for Night, where the young boy steals a poster of Citizen Kane. We understand that the power of the screen can compensate for a deprived life, and that young Salvatore is not apprenticing himself to a projectionist, but to the movies. Anyone who loves movies is likely to love Cinema Paradiso. And there is one scene where the projectionist finds that he can reflect the movie out the window in his booth and out across the town square so that the images can float on a wall, there in the night above the heads of the people. Yes, it is tragic that the big screen has been replaced by the little one. But the real shame is that the big screens did not grow even bigger, grow so vast that they were finally on the same scale as the movies they were reflecting. So I guess he's describing IMAX. I don't know. But uh, it is interesting also to watch that Siskel and Ebert episode from, of course, I think it's from 1990 when this was getting a wider release uh, across the U.S. And them talking about how people don't go to movie theaters anymore and they're just watching movies at home and something that's been lost and things that people are talking about constantly, you know, 32 years later or whatever were, were concerns for them at that point. Well, Josh, I, one of the stats I had read was in uh, Italy in 1956, there were over 17,000 movie theaters and uh, wow. like the most in all of Europe. So, and I love that aspect of this movie, how this is the communal social hub of the town mm-hmm. and everything. But I wanted to get into the point of how people can replace the failures or the voids in their life with cinema. Josh, tell us about how you've done that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, Jason, that we have all done that, all of us here. No one who has a movie podcast (laughs) has not done that in their life. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely, uh, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people, if I'm feeling, you know, down, if I'm, uh, not having a great day, I can watch a movie and even a bad movie. And I think it'll, it'll give me a a little bit of a boost. So, and I think that's not an uncommon thing at all. And I think this movie could make you feel both sad and great at the same time. 
Right. And that is what's good about this movie. It is, it is certainly bittersweet, um, but it is a movie for people who love movies and especially the way it incorporates so many other movies. You know, throughout the course of this film, we see all these different movies that they are showing at the Cinema Paradiso, uh, some of which are really, really famous, uh, you know, American films that, that we're likely to recognize, a lot of which are Italian films uh, and other European films that we may not be familiar with. But just the way that you can appreciate that stuff on the big screen there as the characters appreciate it is, is certainly, you know, it makes you want to, you finish this movie and it makes you want to go watch a movie from the 40s or 50s or something like that. To continue to fill that void. Exactly. It never, it's never filled. You know that. <laughs> the endless void. <laughs> Come on, Jason, you too have an endless void. Keep putting out movies so we can try <laughs> to fill it. <laughs> anyway, uh, Dessen Thompson in the Washington Post was uh, more measured in his praise. He said, just about everything you ever loved or hated about Italian films can be found in Giuseppe Tornatore's Cinema Paradiso. From the industry's entrenched system of post-dubbing to the unofficial requirement that, somewhere in the movie, a man treat a woman's breasts the way others do the accordion. But for the most part, this ham-fisted movie is very enjoyable. Despite his crowding of the film with familiar Italian character cutouts, screaming parents, admonishing parents, masturbating boys, and yes, even a town idiot, Screenwriter-director Tornatore gives these and other cliches an entertaining flow, a certain Mediterranean deliriousness. His excessive spirit is given appropriately sentimental swirl by scorer Ennio Morricone, and comely authority by cinematographer Blasco Girato, who floods Paradiso with exquisite compositions. And it does look great, too, this movie. I mean, yeah. When, when were the breasts played like an accordion, Josh? I'm not, he might've had a longer paragraph about specifically when that was that I felt not necessary to quote, but, um, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's certainly, uh, it, it was, it was a bit surprising to me, even though I've seen this movie before at how many, uh, sort of illicit things went on in the movie theater at various points, including at one time, a prostitute who just seemed to operate in some sort of back room where people were just, uh, coming in and out. I mean, like I said, it's a small town, right? It's, you know, uh, what year is this supposed to take well, place in Josh? It takes place over a, you know, a, right. a long period of time. I think it starts after, just after World, World War, II, War II, so II, right? 45, yes. 46, something like that. Right. Exactly. So, you know, this is the social center. Uh, there is censorship of a lot of the movies because it's a religious town. So you know that uh, there is pent up sexual frustration. And then when they showed some sexier movies, um, which were not X-rated, they were released movies at the time. The uh, Some of the townsfolk needed to uh, get the rocks off, baby. They did. Well, but it's not just that. It's that this prostitute seems to have like an office in the theater at one point where she just sets up shop. You know, it's the busiest place in town. Where else would you want to work? Mm -hmm. I, I guess uh, I guess it worked out for her. And uh, what about, you know, the guy who references uh, Destin references the masturbating boys. That's that must be a little weird to be in a movie theater. And like all these teenagers are like, Raquel, well, she's on the screen. I am masturbate now. <laughs> yeah. All, <laughs> of them, all like, next to each other. Right. In a row know? there. Yeah. yeah. And then mm -hmm. the uh, usher or whoever it is comes and admonishes them, you know, to stop. And then he looks at the screen and sees Raquel Welch, or is it Brigitte Bardot? Or maybe it's, uh, I don't remember. Maybe, um, yeah. But either way, a very sexy woman. And then he kind of almost starts jerking it himself. 
in the middle of the aisle there. And like, maybe, come on, guys. Maybe they should ask, like, when you buy your ticket, will you be masturbating? And there's like, oh, it's like Gallagher, you know, the splash zone or something. <laughs> there's a, yep. a, a, a masturbatorium or something. Yeah, in, uh, a, master, a, a little masturbating row. So. Yeah, that's that's great. I definitely do not want to go to that movie theater. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> so uh, Vincent Canby in the New York Times did not like this movie. He said, Cinema Paradiso is stuffed with dozens of clips and other mementos that evoke the heritage of the cinema. This is risky business in a movie as soft as Cinema Paradiso, which means to celebrate the icons of the cinema. The film, however, evokes nothing more substantial than sentimental B-movies made by hacks in Hollywood and abroad, and which go unrecognized by Mr. Tornatore in his anthology of clips. Mr. Tornatore, who wrote the screenplay and directed Cinema Paradiso, may admire the masters, but his methods are commonplace and false. Though Cinema Paradiso is certainly better, I'd rather watch a half dozen reruns of different strokes. Not so much magic, and the pretensions are fewer. So I, I read the whole review, and I'm not sure exactly why he compares it specifically to different strokes. But because of the masturbation row. Oh, yeah. Right, of course. <laughs> I forgot about that episode. A very, a very special episode of different <laughs> no, strokes. No, there's a row of masturbating, and they're all different. Come on, Josh. I shouldn't have to explain this joke to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, the stroke. Yeah, no. That's, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't mention that aspect of the film. But were you, um, When you read this review, were you like, what you talking about, Vincent? Yeah, I'm sure uh, Giuseppe Tornatore was, but uh, I mean, I think he's being overly harsh, but on the other hand, I do feel like there's a lot of uh, excessive sentimentality in this film and that it works for the most part, especially because of that Ennio Morricone score. But I think it's not surprising to me that some people would look at this movie and say, oh, that's just so sappy. Yeah, I think you nailed it. It did work for me, though. I'm going to say it worked for me. But, no, that's fine. You know, I felt it was all earned, that sentimentality. And I thought, loved how it played against the movies that they showed. Right. And I think a lot of it works for me. I, I think I don't like it as much as you uh, do. But it's, it's a nice film, you know, I think is, is my feeling on it. So, Do uh, you have a favorite episode of Different Strokes? I'm sure I did when I was like 10 because I, I loved Different Strokes as a kid, but I, I haven't watched. I, I don't remember. Didn't Arnold get sexually molested in one of the I, episodes? I do remember that was a, a plot. And um, <laughs> I don't know why that would be my favorite episode. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a weird, <laughs> weird way to go for you, Josh. It's the only one think... I can think of. So uh, yeah. that's all that stayed with me since I was a child. I'm sure Different Strokes is terrible and definitely not. Uh, a better watch than Cinema Paradiso. Yeah, I would agree. Wasn't Janet Jackson in it also Different Strokes, not Cinema Paradiso? Didn't she play like the older, like she defended Arnold at some points in time? Anyway, let's talk about the Maybe. Movie. Yeah, let's definitely not do an episode about Different Strokes. So, uh, Jason, as you mentioned, we watched this movie together. Uh, I believe it was my first time. I believe it was both of ours. Yeah. Uh, in our uh, little film discussion club that we used to have with, shout out to Tony Macklin, the great critic who introduced us to this film. So, uh, and I think, I, I don't know, my reaction this time was about the same. Did you change your feelings on it? Yeah, no, I think the same also, but I know it was Dave's first time watching and that's exciting for us. Yeah. Yeah, I had never seen it before and uh, I absolutely loved it. And, you know, we'll get into it more, but the sentimentality, I mean, it's, it's a totally valid criticism of this, but uh, it's about movies, guys. How can you not love this? Right. Well, as yeah, as alluded to there, you know, if you're a movie fan, this is something that, you know, it captures a feeling that that maybe 
that you have felt that you have and and someone who is not as you know uh obsessed with movies might not identify with this as much probably with less a void to fill maybe they fill their void with something else donuts donuts knitting uh cosplay pokemon i don't know there's a million things different strokes reruns Different, I'm sure there's someone out there who is uh, emotionally coping by just watching different strokes over and over again. Well, that's because the world don't move to the beat of just one stroke. What well, might be right be so, or some might not be right. Go on, Josh. At least so, you're not singing that to the tune of the love theme from Cinema Paradiso. Da, dee, da, 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 da. We'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Cinema Paradiso. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special 10th retrospective season, we are returning to 1989 to talk about another foreign film pick, Giuseppe Tornatore's Cinema Paradiso, which was the Oscar winner uh, for Best Foreign Language Film, as well as the multiple award winner in in various other places. So, uh, Jason, I think you like this more than I did. So uh, why don't you uh, start off? What What is the best thing about this movie? Um, the best thing about it is the relationship between Alfredo and Toto. You know, um, I think that really works well. But before we jump into that, Josh, can I take this sentimentality thing? Because we keep bringing it up and why it's so effective. Yeah. Because this character has left his home for 30 years. And the person who told him to leave told him to never come back. And he was, if you come back, I'm not going to let you into my house. You have to go and follow your destiny. So. Now, we don't even know if he how much he's thought about this town. We know that his mom, whenever she wants to see him, has to come visit him. This is the adult Salvatore Toto character in Rome. So this is him looking back and the way that's structured makes the sentimentality work because we see how he got to the point to where he is. And it also works because we don't just see it as like this like rose colored, you know, uh, shade like there are bad things that happen too and there's longing for this character so that's why it works to me because of the layers and because it's built to work not just it's not just there to pull the emotional strings yeah i mean it certainly is pulling your emotional strings and there are a few i some of the bad things i think you know especially uh the scene in which uh alfredo the old projectionist who takes a uh, young toto under his wing uh there's a fire in the in the booth because uh in the old days uh film was extremely flammable and uh alfredo is injured in this fire and only saved because uh young toto rushes in and and pulls him out but of course he is blinded because that is the you know irony that this man who loves movies so much can no longer see the movies uh i i felt like that whole development was a little melodramatic um but you know, it's obviously an essential part of the story and of Salvatore's development because he's then able to take over himself as the projectionist and uh, kind of move into that role within the town. Um, but, you know, there are moments in this movie where it did feel a little too sentimental to me. Um, but I think you're right, too, that that flashback structure and we see the adult Salvatore who is very successful, but maybe a bit unsettled or not. Right, unfulfilled, not quite happy with his life. And I want to say, I could be wrong about this, but my impression that I got was not only that he had never returned to the town, 
but that his mother hasn't come visit him. He hasn't spoken to his family in 30 years. No, no, that's not true. I don't think. I, I think they say it in the beginning uh, where the mom says, every time I want to see you, I have to come visit you. I think when the mom and the sister are talking, okay. that's what they I, say. Because I, I, I thought she said something about, you know, uh, he hasn't even talked to us in 30 years because they're trying to reach him and they don't even know how to call him, right? They're calling other his office or they don't know how to get in touch with him. I don't think that's true. I think right. that they've said like every time she wants to go, she has to go to Rome. But maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe you're right. I know there is that scene at the end where he does come back and he says, she says, are you tired? He goes, no, the flight's only an hour. And she goes, maybe not the best thing to tell me after not coming for 30 years, you know? Right, <laughs> you know? right. And if she had gone to see him, she would probably know that the flight was only an hour. So I, I don't know. Maybe you are right. But I mean, to me, that was also one of the things that, I mean, not to jump right into more criticism, but that didn't work because the idea that Alfredo tells him not only like, hey, leave our small town and go to Rome and make your fortune, but like, never come back here, never talk to us again. I mean, whether or not he's actually talked to his mom and sister, he definitely has never talked to Alfredo because Alfredo is like, I forbid it. And to me, that just seemed kind of mean and unnecessarily harsh for what his purpose, I guess, is, which is that I want you to go and become successful and not spend your whole life in a small town as a movie projectionist. Um, and there's stuff in the director's cut, maybe we'll get to it later, that makes Alfredo seem even worse that way. So I don't know. That to me was like, I don't feel the warmth in this relationship when he's pushing him away in this extremely harsh manner. I think that is a very valid criticism. It, it is. But at the same time, it, first of all, the, the director's cut, I'm sure we'll talk about more later. But uh, right now in this cut, I think the relationship totally works. But some of that melodrama, I think, is, you know, this is a movie and it's meant to kind of replicate, you know, stuff that happens in movies in a way. And it's, it's kind of heightened. It's not real, you know, it's, it's not meant to be real. And I think to me, that's why some of that stuff, while certainly valid, um, it, it doesn't take away from it because it's trying to kind of take on that structure of movies. I guess, I mean, I can buy that more for the fire scene where that's, you know, that kind of, ironic injury or whatever is a staple of especially older movies like what they're seeing in this film. But yeah. the way that, that Alfredo treats him in terms of pushing him out and like basically cutting him off from everyone he loves just seems an unnecessary element and like hurts the relationship, which is the center of this story that, that they have this sort of surrogate father-son relationship to replace Salvatore's father who's killed in World War II. Um, I don't know that just I I've forgotten that aspect of it, how harsh it was. I think, Josh, you're right and wrong. You're right about that second part where it never come back. Um, but that first part, you know, it's all part of that character development, not just for Toto, but for Alfredo, too, because after he goes blind, there is a point where he seems happier and he says, you know, I couldn't see until I lost my sight or whatever it is. So there is that growth of a character. But then I think. As he gets older, there's that bitterness of never having done anything more, right? You know, but um, so I think those are both fair points, both on both sides. But yeah, it is it is a little rough to be like, you know, 
Not even on Christmas. You don't come back here. <laughs> right. It's not like, as he points out, right, that it's an only an hour flight and he becomes an extremely successful, rich filmmaker. Like, I'm sure he could take a couple days and go visit his family in his hometown. He's not going to lose his whole career if he does that. So, uh, yeah. Well, it just... that, that bitterness, though, that Jason's talking about, that only makes the ending all the better, I think. Right, and the ending is great. I don't know if we want to jump to that point, but the ending of this movie is like one of the iconic movie endings where after Alfredo's death, Salvatore does return to the town and attends the funeral and he sees the demolition of the Cinema Paradiso, which has been closed for six years and is in disrepair. And Alfredo's wife says he's he's left this for you and gives him this uh, film canister and he returns to Rome and goes to some, you know, fancy screening room at the film studio where he works or whatever. And they play the film. And what it is, is this sort of montage of all the romantic, uh, mostly kissing moments that the village priest had insisted be cut out of movies in, uh, in the er earlier days when Alfredo was the projectionist. And it really is a powerful, you know, however they went through, however Tornatore went through and chose you know, which moments from which movies to include. It really is a very powerful sort of montage of uh, the emotional impact of cinema. And I mean, it's the kind of thing that you could imagine like when you're on the Oscars, like a tribute to kissing in the movies. Yeah. But it works better than that. And the way that, that Jacques Perrin, who plays the older Salvatore, uh, reacts to it while he's sitting in his, his seat is really powerful too. So I, yeah, I think it's a great ending. So Jason, how do you feel about it? Yeah. And again, I mean, the music just heightens all of that. Right. But oh, yeah. it's a great ending. And like you said, the clips all work, the music works, but it's also kind of a show of the love that Alfredo had for Toto, obviously not in a sexual way, but in that kind of affectionate way. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly, Again, this surrogate father figure at the beginning of the movie, Toto doesn't know, is his father alive? He's kind of missing as in the aftermath of the war. And eventually they learn that he, in fact, has died in Russia. And so he doesn't have this father. You know, he's young and already his father has been gone for, it sounds like, a number of years off fighting in the war. And he's never really had a father. And so Alfredo is the one who, who stands in for that there. And, and very well, which again, I think makes it even harder to, to accept the way that he pushes him away when he gets older. I, to me, the best part of this movie is the first half of the film when Toto is young, played by Salvatore He's great. Casio. That, kid, that kid's he, great. I know you hate child actors, Josh, but that kid's great. <laughs> I do. I do often hate them. And I think um, there was another review that was like referenced uh, someone, I forget, someone who didn't like this and said they wanted to wring the kid's neck. And um, I did not feel that way, actually. I thought this kid really has a good balance of like, yeah, he's cute and he's kind of uh, precocious, but I felt like he was real. And I, I genuinely uh, was invested in the emotional relationship between him and Alfredo and the way he kind of wears Alfredo down, who eventually reluctantly lets him come in and, and learn how to work the projector and, you know, kind of wears down Toto's mom as well, who initially is like, no, you can't, I don't want you hanging out at the movie theater and everything. So once it transitioned to the teenage Toto and it shifts and it gets into this whole love story that maybe we'll talk about, I was less into it. 
I think that's fair, but I mean that 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 actual transition was very good the way they made that transition. I like all the scenes. Look, the movie theater and that relationship in the movie theater is the biggest thing, but I don't think it would be as effective if we didn't have all these other good scenes, you know, where like Alfredo's trying to get his um uh you know he's an older man but he's trying to get his equivalent of a grade school diploma and he needs to cheat off of toto and toto (laughs) only agrees to it if he lets him learn how to you know become a projectionist and everything i think all those scenes and where you see the different townsfolk in the theater and you know in one movie uh there's a man sitting on the in the front section and a woman sitting in the balcony and they make eye contact and then you see them together at the next movie like there's so much great stuff you know and what about the scene where like there's a mob of people outside they want to go to a late show and you see the softer side of alfredo it's right it's eventually what starts the fire right but he's able to project that movie onto the wall of an outside building and that's always so cool you know just showing the power of movies and everything like that is um it it was really effective i love that stuff yeah, I mean, that that scene is great. And it's kind of unfortunate that it's immediately precedes that fire scene, which I think is kind of, you know, they that scene is so uh, feel good of him projecting the movie onto the wall and everyone is so happy. And you have, you know, the one guy who lives in like the apartment in the building where that wall is and he comes out and he's like, oh, what are you doing? And, you know, <laughs> then he just goes back inside and the, the uh, theater owner trying to charge people for the tickets. Um, all that stuff is so nice. And I think it's like just sets you up so that he can like punch you in the gut with that fire scene. And to me, that felt a little manipulative. But yeah, there's a lot of really great stuff. Um, all of the relationships that went, the, the couple that you mentioned who make eye contact and then they're together. And then there's a later scene where they have a child and they go all the way through until the end of the movie when Salvatore returns for Alfredo's funeral and there's that couple and they're all old. And that's another thing that is not great in that whole sequence because all these actors are stuck in this terrible old age makeup. But that whole couple is like a through line. The one thing that happens in the theater that I really thought was maybe excessive was at one point there's a mob hit and somebody gets murdered. (laughs) And I was like, I don't think this fits in the whimsy of, I I can even take the, you know, the masturbating boys and the prostitute. It's all about you know, feeling good, but <laughs> dude gets murdered and everyone just kind of, then the next scene is there's like some flowers on his chair and that's it. Nobody seems concerned that the mob has killed someone in this movie theater. Eh, you know, it's Italy. It's the fifties or the forties, whatever. So Josh, you know, we talked about the cinematography and like that scene where he projects it on the wall is a great example. There's also a shot at the end where Salvatore comes back and it starts on his mom knitting, you know, and then it moves up uh, to see her, you know, and she kind of knows that he's back and it follows this yarn as she kind of like uh, runs to the door and then goes all the way back, tracks back through the apartment, out the window into the courtyard where you see the embrace of the mom and the uh, and Salvatore. And it's so such an excellent shot, like so well designed and well executed, like just awesome. Yeah, that is a great shot. And you could say that that, you know, as she runs out to greet Salvatore, her knitting is coming unraveled. And, you know, I don't know, some kind of metaphor going on there for how his presence in her life has 
affected her over the years. Um, but yeah, just a beautiful shot. Absolutely. This does have great cinematography. You know, what I was surprised to me, and you mentioned it up front, is that a lot of these performances were overdubbed. Like, you know, Philippe Noiré won the best BAFTA Oscar, but it was Vittorio De Prima who did the words that we heard while watching it, right? That was a little different for me. Yeah, I mean, and it, this is as as that Dessen Thompson review indicates, this is, I don't know if it's still the case, probably not anymore, but for uh, decades, this is just how they made movies in Italy, that every performance is dubbed. And for the most part, these are Italian actors, so they're dubbing their own voices. It's just that they don't record the sound on set. Um, but you're right. I mean, this is why they can cast someone like Philippe Noiret or Jacques Perrin also, who plays the, the adult Salvatore. And I'm not sure if he dubbed his own voice or not. He's also French, but he's been in some other Italian films. So it's possible he dubbed his own voice. It's hard for us to tell because we don't speak Italian. So we can't necessarily, you know, uh, discern the accents. But yeah, to, to me, it is very disconcerting. And I think it's something that Italian viewers just accept and it's the norm, but it is a bit weird. And I, I always feel like with movies like that, where it's so obvious that they dubbed all the dialogue later, that it, it, it kind of blunts some of the emotional response um, because it feels like the actor's voices and their physical presence aren't connected. But I, I think it's actually easier to deal with that in a movie like this where it's not, we don't know the language. And so we're already reading subtitles anyway, and there's already some distance to it. But yeah, it is a little weird. Did it bother you, Jason? It didn't bother me, I think, for the same reasons you're talking about. It was in English and it was so obvious that it would have bothered me. Right. And that's not something that we're used to in movies, you know, in American movies or really any English language movies. But, you know, that's that's a very common thing in Italy. But we got to give that guy credit. I mean, you know, Noré won the, the BAFTA there, but De Prima has to get credit. He has to mimic all those emotions without being on screen, just watching this guy's performance and figuring out the right way to say these lines to match him. Yeah, and it does seem almost a little weird to give that guy an award, given that he's only given like half the performance. Not that he's not a great actor and he was an extremely well-known French actor for decades, but it does seem a little strange. So we can't uh, ask the BAFTAs how they felt about that, the voters. Hey, where is the, um, you know, there are scenes where like people are like in a canal or like a... I guess it's a canal. What would it be? It's in Sicily, so I'm not exactly sure. It's a seaside town. So they're on their boats watching the movie being projected outside. Um, right. So maybe it's just in the sea. They're in the sea there. What? Uh, where's like the most fun offbeat place you've seen a movie like that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've definitely gone to outdoor movies. I, I've gone here in Vegas to see the uh, Henderson Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, that's uh, great. Perform live. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, the, the location is just, it was just an outdoor amphitheater, but you know, as far as like a big experiential version of seeing a movie, um, that was pretty cool. I haven't, I haven't gone. I don't think I, I actually, I do remember one year, uh, Dave, Dave, our, uh, friend and, uh, the friend of piecing it together, Chad Clinton Freeman, who used to have his, uh, polygrind film festival here in Las Vegas one year, uh, there was a day of polygrind that was at some, it was like a haunted house attraction. Oh, yeah. And so you had to drive out. It was like on the edge of town and the screen was set up in this outdoor area that looked like, you know, it was like a fake graveyard kind of thing. And that was cool. And it was definitely appropriate 
for Polygrind. So sure. maybe something like that. So what about you, Jason? No, I think the same type of things. Um, you know, we had a movie that we co-wrote, Josh Rick Thunder, that Dave did the music to that played in Reno at a fest. And that was in the park and supposedly like got a great reception. So that's always fun when that stuff happens. But I don't think I've I'm, you know, it would have to be like one of these film festival parties where it's like we're going to show a movie in an offbeat thing. Seeing a movie like while sitting in a pool never appeals to me. I'd be like, I don't want pruny skin halfway through the movie. And <laughs> where am I supposed to put my popcorn, you know? But I, I do yeah. like the idea of watching movies in different places like that. And I think what a wonderful way to, you know, bring the town together in this one. Right. I mean, it's another aspect of just the idea that the movies, whether they're in the theater or, you know, outside in the square, are the way that everyone in this town comes together and the one thing that they kind of all have in common. There's no character in this movie, really, who is like, movies suck. Even the priest, who keeps making sure they censor the movies, loves the movies. Yeah, there was one other scene I wanted to talk about. It's when uh, Salvatore comes back from his military service and he goes to visit Alfredo and he says, you know, they say you don't go out, you don't socialize. And he says, well, you know, eventually what's left to say and then they, they go to the they go to the ocean right like to the sea in this really cool uh space with like all these i guess anchor statues right and they have this conversation about you know what salvatore is going to do and he misses elena and this and that and and alfredo gives him this whole speech of like you go for a week or a year and it's not the same place you really have to go away if you want to come back and recognize this place again I thought that was the more effective scene of the two. You know, we, we've kind of referenced the other one where they're at the train station and he's like, go and don't ever come back. That one, the first one was, I thought, great and could have just been left like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think the idea that maybe he doesn't come back or he hasn't come back because he's not emotionally uh, equipped to do it or something is is more affecting than the idea that Alfredo has given him this, you know, ultimatum or whatever, like you must never return. Um, it just, yeah, it, it didn't seem in keeping that that with their relationship. That scene that you're talking about is is gentler. It's more about their connection that they've uh, forged over the years and Alfredo offering wisdom and insight. Um, and that definitely works better. So I feel like we need to talk a little bit at least about Elena the love interest character who I had zero interest in. Well, I was wondering if you wanted to save that for the legacy and discussing the director's cut and everything like that, because we can do that. Cause there is a lot more with her in the director's. Yeah. Cut, but... I, I think we should do that because we want to rate this movie uh, from what we've seen, you know, from the international best picture cut here. So you yeah. want to rate it over five censored film reels, Josh? Yes. I'm nice. going to give it three out of five censored film reels. Um, I like it. It's nice, but it just doesn't, it doesn't move me really as much as it does, I think, other people. So, Jason? I give it three and a half, uh, which is my sweet spot for movies that I do think are worth seeking out. Um, lots of really good stuff here. Um, happy I watched it again. Yeah. And I mean, and I still, I think it's worth seeing, especially for movie buffs, but it just doesn't, it's not great to me. So Dave. I'm going all the way to five guys. Wow. Yeah. I, I loved this movie. It's fantastic. fantastic. And, and wow. so, some of the things you guys talked about, I, I would agree with, but it just made me feel so much. I loved it. Wow. Is there anything else about it that, that, that just, that spoke to you so much that, that we didn't mention? 
I mean, I, I think we kind of got into a lot of it. It's that love of movies. It's that, you know, my reading of it, that all of this is heightened and kind of represents the kind of things that happen in movies happening in real life and vice versa, looking back at movies. And then, of course, that score just elevates the whole thing. So, yeah, that's fantastic. I love it when we can introduce either ourselves or someone to a new movie that's worth watching. That's great, Dave. Yeah, I'm very happy that you loved it so much, Dave. So uh, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Cinema Paradiso. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special 10th retrospective season, we are returning to the Awesome Movie Year of 1989 to talk about foreign film pick Cinema Paradiso And as we've been referencing throughout the episode, uh, one of the biggest things in terms of the legacy of this movie is the director's cut that I'm sure largely thanks to this this level of acclaim for this movie that Giuseppe Tornatore was able to get his version, which is 173 minutes long, uh, released. It was released in 2002 uh, on home video. And it is widely available still. In fact, uh, Jason, I think, uh, had a problem of acquiring a, a version of the DVD that didn't even have the theatrical cut. So Th- that is it, true. But I didn't. I watched the one that we all watched. Uh, we should say none of us have watched the 173 minute version. We have not. And I think, although it is widely available, I think generally the the popular theatrical cut is still the one that most people watch. Um, but it's so much longer. And, you know, a lot of director's cuts restore really just maybe a few minutes or something, you know, a handful of things that the director really cared about. But this, from what we've read, sounds like it makes it almost into a different movie. And I think it was Roger Ebert in his review of the new version who said that watching this makes it feel like it's its own sequel. Um, Because the majority of the material is about this relationship between Salvatore and Elena. The majority of the material that was cut. Exactly. The majority of the material that was cut and that is then added back in is about this. And in in this version, in the original version, we see their love story as, as young people, as teenagers. And then her family moves away from the town and he goes off to military service and they lose touch. They He is unable to reach her. We don't really know why, but it seems that she's moved away and he doesn't know her address and he never hears from her again. And that's the end of it. And it's kind of this, you know, uh, formative thing for him. It's another reason why maybe he leaves the town. Um, In the director's cut, the sequence of the older adult Salvatore returning to the town uh, for Alfredo's funeral is much, much longer, it sounds like. And he ends up reuniting with Elena. He spots her daughter, who is played by the same actress who plays young Elena. So he recognizes her and then goes and and finds adult Elena, who is now married, and they have kind of a brief uh, sexual encounter in a car. Uh, Ebert also mentions, I think it was Ebert, that this uh, the director's cut is rated R, whereas the original cut is rated PG. And I think that that kind of, like, I'm happy with R-rated movies, but I, I feel like a sex scene is not really what you want in this film. And, and to me, the worst thing, rather than the, the that reunion, we learn that the reason that he lost touch with Elena is that Alfredo told Elena, like, you must break it off with him and never talk to him again as part of his 
weird campaign to get Salvatore to leave town. And it just makes Alfredo seem even worse. So uh, not having seen this, everything that I read about it makes it sound like it would make the movie worse. I agree. And I think the longing that Salvatore has for Elena, even in this version, is really effective. Even, you know, the scene with the mom, like you've never really loved anyone since her. Like, I think that was enough. I don't know why we needed this extra bit. And it does seem to make Alfredo like this crazy, obsessive mentor, like he must become filmmaker, you know, and everything. (laughs) So I don't I don't get it, Josh. I'm glad that that's not the version we saw. Yeah, I I agree. And I feel like also, even in the theatrical cut, the scenes of the adult Salvatore when he comes back to the town, like that to me is the least interesting. It's not about what he's doing once he's an adult. It's about his coming of age. It's about his time in the town, being the projectionist and, and working with Alfredo. And so that's only maybe 15 or so minutes in the theatrical cut. But to have another 40 minutes or whatever of that, I think would have been dreadful. So um Definitely happy with the version that we have here. Um, other legacy stuff here. Uh, I mean, Giuseppe Tornatore, this is certainly his most famous film. Uh, he continues to work. You know, he makes a lot of films in Italy, uh, has also made a few English language films with recognizable, uh, you know, American and, and British stars, although nothing that I've seen. The Legend of 1900, The Best Offer. And the correspondence are his English language films. And the correspondence from 2016 is the last uh, narrative feature film that he made. He's also worked in music videos and in commercials. And he does have a new film that's a documentary called Ennio the Maestro that is a documentary about Ennio Morricone that uh, doesn't have a U.S. distributor yet, but I'm sure will eventually uh, end up being available here in some capacity. So have you seen any of his other films, Jason? No, but uh, The Legend of 1900 would be the one where I'd want to start because that that's supposed to be a very good movie. Yeah, I have uh, weirdly seen the uh, American remake of his Italian film, Everybody's Fine, which uh, in America stars Robert De Niro and is very bad. So I hope the original is better. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that documentary, though. That sounds great. Yeah. You know, he and Morricone worked on every movie he's done and probably all of his ad campaigns too. Right. And I wonder if if maybe one reason that he hasn't made another feature since 2016 is because Morricone died in 2018 and is not available to score one of his films. And it's almost, I don't know if it's like a superstition or- His son is available though. That's true. And maybe that's not the reason. Maybe there's all sorts of reasons why movies don't get made. But- I think this goes with my surprise at his age because I saw, oh, he hasn't made a movie since 2016. He must be like in his 80s and probably basically retired, but he's not. No, he's not. He's like, yeah, 65. He could still be pumping him out there. Yeah. Dave, any, I mean, you're the film score guy. Any Morricone favorites over the years? I mean, the thing, uh, you know, there, there's there's so many, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's just great. You know, I mean, even Tarantino reusing his stuff is awesome yeah and he did do the original score for hateful aid and you know obviously a lot of us would be introduced to him through once upon a time in the west a fistful of dollars Mm -hmm. uh josh you'll be happy to know when uh bruce springsteen plays italy sometimes he comes out to those songs as a homage to (laughs) morricone he likes that music too um, uh, you know who else uses Morricone as their uh music that they walk out on stage to at every single concert is Metallica. 
There you go. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You're right. The Ecstasy Ooh. of Gold uh, is a Morricone composition that introduces every Metallica concert. One movie I don't think any of us have seen, but is very famous musical, La Caja Fa, the French version, is all him. So I bet that would be a lot of, you know, great music there, too. He's toured. He's done concerts. He's done the whole thing. He's he was the oldest person to win an Oscar in a competitive situation, which I think was hateful. He's also won the honorary award at the Academy, three Grammys, uh, three Golden Globes, six BAFTAs. Six David de, uh, de Donatello's, which are the Italian ones, uh, the Nastro de Argento's Italian Awards, two European Film Awards, the Golden Lion Honorary Award, Polar Music Prize. Like, he's the goods, man. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. It took him until The Hateful Eight, right before he died, to win a competitive Oscar for Best Original Score. He won that honorary award in 2007. I think that says more about the Oscars than it says about Morricone. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And he was also, we mentioned that this score was not nominated for an Oscar, but he was nominated for an Oscar for another Tornatore movie, Milena, which was nominated for Best Original Score, um, which I, you know, I haven't seen. It's another Italian film with uh, Monica Bellucci. And so that's kind of interesting that a relatively obscure Italian film managed to get that uh, original score nomination from the Oscars, but he did not win that one. Nope. Philippe Noiré, uh, who plays Alfredo, uh, as we're saying, he was a very prolific actor, mostly in France, uh, working steadily until uh, he died in 2006. Uh, one, probably the most well-known uh, film that he did after this one was uh, Il Postino, The Postman, where he played Pablo Neruda. That was a movie that got nominated for a lot of Oscars, although I did not see it. Salvatore Caschio, who plays the young Toto, a handful of other things as a child, but, you know, seems to have kind of mostly left acting uh, as he got older. Uh, Marco Leonardi, however, who plays the middle uh, version of Salvatore, the teenage and young adult version, is a steadily working actor, mostly in Italy, but occasionally in movies uh, in, in the U.S. He was in uh, Robert Rodriguez's Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Uh, he was in Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World. Uh, and recently in a film that got a lot of acclaim, and I think, Jason, did you see this film, Martin Eden? I feel like we talked about that one time. I wanted to see it. I didn't see it yet, though. Okay. Well, yeah, he's in that as well. So he works He works a lot. And uh, Jacques Perrin, who plays the adult Salvatore, uh, also working. Uh, he's he's uh, gotten older and uh, not working as much, but as an actor and producer, uh, yeah. mainly in France. Huge body of work for as both. Yes. And, and, and Noiré as well. I mean, this was later in his life, but prior to this film, you know, made dozens and dozens and dozens of movies. Yeah. I was reading about Noiré and there was some really cool stuff about how he said, like, you know, as he got older, he really was focused on the stage and he didn't think there was a future for him in acting. And he was comparing, he was saying him and John Paul Belmondo were both feeling the same way. And then they kind of both hit this, you know, next gear as as film actors as life went on. Yeah, I mean, this was certainly something that you would think you know, all the acclaim for this film would have revitalized his career if it was lagging a bit. So uh, anything else you want to mention on the legacy here, Jason? No, I mean, it is kind of sad, Josh, that we, you know, we we talk about it a lot on Dave's podcast, too, and in our Facebook groups about where the future of cinema is going and how it seems like there's going to be less and less of this stuff. I'm reading a, like a book about the history of England and it all talks about the same type of thing, how the movie theater was the center of 
the social life in, um, you know, and like whatever, 80% of people would go see a movie every week. And, you know, we're, we're moving further and further away from that. That's true. I mean, although to me, one of the things about watching like that Siskel and Ebert episode where they talk about all this stuff is like, in a way, it's reassuring that they were complaining about all these things 30 plus years ago and, and the movie theaters still exist. They didn't die out in 1989. So, I mean, we're in such a weird moment right now where it's hard to really discern what, you know, sort of quote, normal things will become in a year or two even. And, and sure, maybe there's more peril for movie theaters now than there was in 1989. But I I feel like even if they're not going to get to the point that they are at in Cinema Paradiso, we're never going to have this be the center of social life in a, in a, in a town. I, I think there's so much value that people place in it that it's not going to go away. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful on that front. And, and also, I, I feel like if people are watching movies, you know, if you watch Cinema Paradiso at home, like at least you watched Cinema Paradiso, you know, you watch good movies, whatever you watch them. I'm still happy about that. Yeah, well, you're just trying to fill that void. Right. That's true. That's true. I'm talking about for other people. But uh, but yes, I'm I'm happy to watch movies in whatever capacity I am able to and talk about them. That's a really positive note to go out on, Josh. Thank you. And enjoy <laughs> chatting about those movies with my friends here. Josh. The movie Year podcast. Don't ever come back. Not now and not for 30 years. <laughs> yes. Our next episode is in mm. 30 years when Jason is dead. So <laughs> Jesus, man. That's You've driven me away and I will only return for your funeral. Oh, well, maybe I'll have to go see your funeral instead and I'll All laugh. Right. Ha ha, you're the dead one now. See, Dave, you said we were going to end it on a positive note and uh, then we went into this instead. Look what happens. Yeah. So that is Cinema Paradiso and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or J Harris Comedy, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, go for Jason.com is a website that was popular in small Italian towns in the 1950s <laughs> and no longer exists as far as I know. Uh, AwesomeMovieYear.com is serviceable still. You can go listen to episodes there and read the About section. Awesome Movie Year, Facebook and Instagram. Awesome movie pod on twitter uh josh bell hates everything.com i i did have some things there not that long ago so check that out josh bell hates everything on facebook and at signal bleed on twitter and listen to our producer david rosen's awesome podcast piecing it together check out piecing it together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at piecing pod and much like the cinema paradiso come join our very strange little group of movie lovers popcorn and puzzle pieces on facebook is there a masturbation row there <laughs> probably a, and i don't want to know or a mob hit going on maybe <laughs> all sorts of stuff in that group hey, hey, hey. jason what is in our next episode is it my pick is that what yeah. we're doing next yes yeah well, then I know what episode I'm going to plug because it's my pick, Josh. We're going back to 1967, a year that we've covered already. But I can't believe we left this film out. It's Bonnie and Clyde, one of the all-time classics. So tune in next time for Bonnie and Clyde. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. We'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on cinema parody. It takes so. different strokes to the world. To move the world. To move the world. Just cut all that, Dave, please. Okay. Keep it in, Dave. <laughs>